Open your Bibles or navigate on your tablets and phones to Jeremiah chapter 23. We're going to look at verses 9 through 40. It's a lot of verses. Don't panic. Jeremiah chapter 23, verses 9 through 40. I don't know if you know this or not, but our transcripts are always online. You can uh, follow along with the transcript or have one printed out, bring it with you. Ask me or Gino about how to find those after church. The topic in these verses, God tells Jeremiah that the prophets and the priests are profane men who have profaned his house, the temple of the Lord. The title of our message, Habitat for Profanity. Let's have a word of prayer. Father, thank you for the time of worship that we had, where whether we sang or just reflected on the words, Lord, we understood that you are worthy to be praised and we praised you. Though we have little, well, nothing to offer you, Lord, you receive our worship and praise as that of your children having drawn us to yourself by the cross of Jesus Christ, saved us by his effective sacrifice, filled us with your spirit, Lord. We thank you for all of those things and every other spiritual blessing in heavenly places. We also wanna pray, Lord, this morning for those who are here and hearing this that don't know you, have not really given their heart to you, they haven't asked you to come in and save them, they are not born again, Lord, we pray that your spirit would reveal Christ to them, crucified on their behalf, risen from the dead so that they could live forever, that you would do that spiritual work in them and that today would be the accepted time for them to receive Christ. Now, Lord, as we work through these verses, I pray that they would speak to us sitting right where we are in Hanford, in Kings County, in California, in the United States, in the 21st century, Lord, even though they were written so many years ago, that they would ring true in our own hearts because you are the same yesterday, today, and forever. You haven't changed. And the things that you want us to know and understand and practice, they haven't changed either. So we thank you and praise you in Jesus' name. And those who agreed said, amen. If you want a faster pace than baseball, more brute strength than the NFL, a greater sense of team play than basketball, without a doubt, more fights than hockey, I've got the sport for you. Coming up in just a few days is the annual North American Wife Carrying Championship. How many of you are familiar with this sport? Quite a few of you. Uh, Sad to hear that. Male competitors race while each carrying a female teammate, not necessarily their wife, but I think the purest form of that would be husband and wife. The objective is for the man to carry the woman through a special obstacle track in the fastest time. Several types of carry are allowed. There is the piggyback, the fireman's carry, which is an over-the-shoulder carry, or what they call Estonian style, where the wife hangs upside down with her legs around the husband's shoulders, holding onto his waist. This is why Estonia is not a world power. <laughs> Major wife-carrying competitions are held in Sankajarvi, Finland, where the prize depends on the wife's weight in beer. 
Monona, Wisconsin. Minocqua, Wisconsin. Wisconsin's a hub of wife carrying. And Marquette, Michigan. The North American Wife Carrying Championships take place every year on Columbus Day in October at Sun, uh, Sunday River Ski Resort in Newry, Maine. So there's still a chance for you to catch that on ESPN in a couple of weeks. Does this have anything to do with our text in Jeremiah? Indirectly. I'll tell you how I got there. There's a very interesting word in our text. It's found in verse 11 and again in verse 15. It's the word translated by the New King James Version, profane in verse 11, and profaneness in verse 15. Other English words sometimes used to translate the Hebrew word are ungodly, defiled, unholy, polluted. The Greek word is profanum, which means before or outside of the temple. In literal terms, it describes being on the threshold just outside the temple. Figuratively, when you're using it as an illustration, it illustrates a person who is on the threshold of the temple, meaning they're not in the temple, they're not really worshiping the Lord. They're giving an appearance that they're worshiping the Lord, but they're only on the threshold from God's point of view. Now, I got sidetracked on wife carrying because the word threshold got me thinking of the ancient custom of a groom carrying his bride over the threshold and into their new home. And once I discovered wife carrying, I felt like I had to share it with you. <laughs> Jeremiah calls out and rebukes the false prophets of Judah. They were ungodly, defiled, unholy men spreading spiritual pollution. To capture all of those ideas in a single illustration, Jeremiah said they were on the threshold of the temple. Physically, they still went in the temple, they went through the motions of worship, but spiritually speaking, God saw them as on the threshold outside in the world. Sometimes we say a person has one foot in the world and one foot in the church. The false prophets in Judah didn't even have one foot in the temple. They were profane outside on the threshold in the world. A question for us today might be, am I content to be in the world and on the threshold or am I carried over the threshold by Jesus Christ? I'll organize my thoughts around two points. Number one, the Lord in his love wants to carry you over the threshold and number two, your love for the world will keep you on the threshold. Let's take a look at the Lord and his love in verses nine through 11. In these verses, before getting a look at the false prophets, we get a glimpse at the true prophet, the man of God, Jeremiah. Verse nine, my heart within me, it's broken because of the prophets. All my bones shake. I'm like a drunken man and like a man whom wine has overcome because of the Lord and because of his holy words. For the land is full of adulterers. Because of a curse, the land mourns. The pleasant places of the wilderness are dried up. Their course of life is evil and their might is not right. Jeremiah's contemporaries were adulterers pursuing an evil course of life. They were committing spiritual adultery by worshiping idols. And as a result of that, they were also committing all manner of sexual sin as well. The glimpse we get of Jeremiah is that of a believer who remains sensitive to sin because he is under the influence of God. First, we see how sensitive he was in his descriptors. The sin surrounding him, he said, broke his heart. It caused him literally to tremble. 
he sensed that there was a curse on the land because of the sins of these men. And so if you, if you saw Jeremiah, you would see a heartbroken man who was trembling, understanding that the land had been cursed because God had withdrawn his blessings because of the sin of the people. As for his tenderness towards God, he described himself as a drunken man whom wine had overcome because of the Lord and because of his holy words. We'll miss what he was saying here unless we remember that later on in the New Testament, the Apostle Paul compares the influence of God in our lives to being drunk. It isn't that we act drunk or out of control. The idea is that we are influenced by God like a drunken man is under the influence of alcohol. With the drunk, he consumes alcohol and it influences him. With God, we're consumed with him and he therefore influences us. One author described it this way. When we are drunk with wine, we take in a foreign substance which has an effect upon our brains and as we begin to think differently under the influence of the alcohol, we begin to talk differently and act differently. So also when we allow the Holy Spirit to fill us, he begins by renewing our minds, our thinking comes under the influence and control of the Spirit, and when our thinking changes, our speaking and acting changes, we are under the Spirit's control and influence. Now in verse 11, God responded to Jeremiah. He said, for both prophet and priest are profane. Yes, in my house I have found their wickedness, says the Lord. Now God called prophets and priests profane. Uh, Jeremiah was uh, upset, sad, touched by the fact that his fellow prophets were profane. And God says, it's not just the prophets, it's the priests as well. He says here, they were in my house, but because of their wickedness, God saw them as outside of the temple on the threshold with their backs to him. And see, this is the, we miss this really as, a, as a, an illustration because when I think of profane or profanity in our culture, I always think of swear words, of swearing, of using foul language. Uh, and that's certainly part of it, or it's, a, it's an, a representation of profanity. But what God is saying is, I look in my house, in the temple of the Lord, and I see the prophets and the priests, but even though they're standing there, going through the motions of worship, giving out these prophecies, the way I see it, they are outside of the temple. They might as well be standing outside. They haven't really come in, in terms of their hearts. They are profane outside the temple, on the threshold. Now, I don't want to mix metaphors. You have to be careful with this a little bit because in the New Testament, the Bible says we are the temple of the Holy Spirit. That's because when you get saved, when you come to Jesus Christ and ask him to forgive you your sins, the Holy Spirit indwells you, he lives within you, and you are now in that sense, the temple of the Holy Spirit. And when we get together, the Bible says, corporately, we are also the temple of the Holy Spirit. Uh, and so you can't really be on the threshold of the temple or outside the temple in the same sense that uh, this illustration is talking about because you don't, the Holy Spirit doesn't come and go. If you're born again, if you're a genuine Christian, the Holy Spirit resides in you and, and you can't talk about him being out of you uh, in that same sense. But just using this as an illustration, setting that aside for a, a while, I think you understand the bigger illustration where we could ask ourselves in a very uh, 
you know, um, strict sense, am I in the temple the same way Jeremiah was, remaining and becoming more sensitive to sin because I'm under the influence of God? Am I in the temple, really? Uh, or the way Jesus would put it to the church at Ephesus, when he reproved them, he says, guys, you've left your first love. So that's another way of saying it. It's a different illustration, but the same idea. So am I, am I really in the temple fully? Do I have one foot in the world and one foot in the Lord? Am I out there in the world sinning? That's the idea. Now, by mere observation, I think many of us would say that by and large, Christians are getting less and less sensitive to sin. Now, I don't want to pick and choose different things because I would only pick and choose the things that make me look the best. That's what we do as Christians. But I think in a generalization, you can challenge me on this if you'd like, but I think most of us would agree, if you've been a Christian at least 10 years, and certainly longer, I think you would say that in general, Christians, the Christian community at large, has less sensitivity to sin than they had 10 or 20 or 30 years ago. Or or at least you'd have to say that certain things that once were obviously sinful and not practiced among Christians are commonplace today. So either we have really gotten super mature and can really handle those things, or we've just grown insensitive to the fact that they are not edifying and that they are actually sinful. And and this is always a fight. We talk about this a lot here because the world is designed to desensitize you to sin. All of the things that you watch on television, all of the movies that you go and see, all of the publications that you read that aren't explicitly Christian and even some that are, they are whittling away at your sensitivity to sin by showing you things and telling you things and explaining things to you that you know, are really not pure, they're not holy, they're not separate, they make you feel like you're some kind of a, a prude, that you know, society is moving rapidly into a kind of a freedom in these areas and you wanna hold on to these antiquated Christian values and little by little we move our tent closer to the world. We're always better than the world, but I don't think we should be moving. We need to just plant our tent and stay on that solid ground. Let's take our stand in the temple, as it were, not on the threshold. Never, you don't ever wanna be on the threshold of the temple. You wanna be fully in. If your love is in any way wax cold, then let the love's Lord, uh, the love's Lord, let the Lord's love carry you back over the threshold, as it were. Do the first works reminiscent of your first love. I don't know what else to say, because in my own life, all you can do is come to the realization that your love is waxed cold. A A lot of the Christian life to me anymore is just realization. It's looking at the word of God and saying, is that true of me? Uh, and and my, because my, my initial position, and many of us would say this too, is that I'm okay, I don't need to, I'm fine. After all, I do these things and I do those things. I have some trouble over here, but it, it's no big deal. And, and I think we need to just really be honest with ourselves and say, how much in the temple am I? Am I on the threshold? These things that I'm doing, I'm involved with, that I've brought back into my life, are they really 
over the threshold things? Are they on the threshold things? Where do they keep me most of the time? That's for you and the Lord to talk about. Verses 12 through 40, a lot of ground to cover in the remaining verses. Let's do it by looking for characteristics that would indicate a person is on rather than over the threshold. Verse 12, Therefore their ways shall be to them like slippery ways. In the darkness they shall be driven on and fall in them. For I will bring disaster on them the year of their punishment, says the Lord. We can make application of this to someone who has pulled away from fellowship. You all know someone like that. You have at least over the years. You talk to them about it and their reasons seem a little bit vague. They're not making as much sense as you think they should. They're actually evasive about where they've been and what they're doing. And then over time, you see that they have fallen away and they have been secretly on a slippery path walking in the darkness. Don't be that person. Walk in the open. Walk in the light. Stay on the firm ground of the word of God. Verse 13, I have seen the folly in the prophets of Samaria. They prophesied by Baal and caused my people Israel to err. As you know, the northern kingdom of Israel capital was Samaria, they had listened to false prophets to their detriment. Those false prophets had been influenced by the Canaanite god Baal. And so essentially what they were doing was saying, we're, we're still worshiping Jehovah, we're still into the word of God, but there's a lot of wisdom out here in what these prophets of Baal have to say. I mean, these guys really know the world in a way that, that God didn't when he had Moses write Deuteronomy and those other books. And so, so we need the wisdom from the world. And man, when you put the wisdom of the world and the wisdom of God together, you've got quite a concoction. Well, yeah, you do, it, but it's poison. Because God says of his word, he says, listen, you have a problem. If it's a spiritual problem, it's a, if it's a life issue, the word of God can discern between your soul and your spirit. I can give you not only wisdom, but I can give you the power to overcome and do what is right and what is needful. We don't need to be adding this stuff from the world, which doesn't really seem to be working for the people in the world, does it? People in the world, are they getting better because of the advances in psychology and psychotherapy? I don't think so. They're just getting more drugged because of those advances. And so we need to be careful about those things. Otherwise, it becomes difficult to repent because what all of those therapies eventually tell you is that what's happening isn't your fault. It isn't sin. Sin becomes an ancient concept that only cave people, you know, uh, understood. I say it's so easy, even a caveman could understand sin, but people say, no, you're not a sinner. You have an ism or a, a, you know, a disorder. You can't do anything about it. We might be able to do something about it, but you can't, and so you're not gonna repent of something like that. Now, I always have to preface this by saying there are real conditions, real physical conditions, real physical problems that people have. We're not against medications here and those kinds of things. We're against mixing the wisdom of the world with the scripture, which tells you that it's not sin, it's a syndrome. Because you're, you don't repent of syndromes, you only repent of sin. And a lot of people just need to repent. Verse 14, 
Also, I've seen a horrible thing in the prophets of Jerusalem. They commit adultery and walk in lies. They also strengthen the hands of evildoers so that no one turns back from his wickedness. All of them are like Sodom to me and her inhabitants like Gomorrah. Now, the mention of Sodom and Gomorrah tells us that the prophets of Jerusalem were practicing all manner of sexual sin. They were walking in lies. What lies? Well, since their lies strengthened the hands of evildoers and they were walking in sexual sin, I'd say their lies involved a relaxation of God's teaching on sexual morality and purity. And we certainly see this in our culture. Uh, Not just a relaxation of those standards, but an abandonment of those standards. The culture at large has abandoned God's standards for marriage and sex within marriage only, and they're out doing their own thing. Our stand for marriage and sex only within biblical marriage is the only over-the-threshold option. If you're involved in anything other than that, you are way out off the threshold and into the world. Verse 15, therefore the Lord says, uh, the Lord of hosts says concerning the prophets, behold, I will feed them with wormwood and make them drink the water of gall. For from the prophets of Jerusalem, profaneness has gone out into all the land. Thus says the Lord of hosts, do not listen to the words of the prophets who prophesy to you. They make you worthless. They speak a vision of their own heart, not from the mouth of the Lord. They continually say to those who despise me, the Lord has said, you'll have peace. And to everyone who walks according to the dictates of his own heart, they say, no evil shall come upon you. So instead of calling people to holiness, the false prophets encouraged them that they could sin without any real fear of the Lord. Perhaps they were telling them that it wasn't so bad because God would forgive them anyway. Don't look for counsel that says it's all right to continue in your sin. This is something we do. We're struggling with something and we have a tendency to look for counsel that softens the blow. Maybe it's sin, but you know, maybe it's not and all this. Just don't go looking for that counsel. And don't give that counsel. You know, we need to tell it like it is. We don't have to be brutal. Uh, you know, I know people... Sometimes they they are brutal in their application of scripture. We can be gentle and tender. But if something is definitely sinful, we need to tell people, hey, what you're doing is sin. And I think we should use the S word. Uh, You know, sometimes we even soften that and we say it's it's wrong, it's not the best, it's off track. You know, those, those are all d- descriptions of where you end up, but I think sometimes somebody needs to hear ringing in their ears, hey, what you're doing is sin. It misses God's mark, God's clear mark in the word of God. You're, you're doing what Jesus died f- to save you from. And, and so let's deal with that together. Verse 19, or 18, excuse me. For who has stood in the counsel of the Lord? Who has perceived and heard his word? Who has marked his word and heard it? Well, you have. If you're a Christian, you have his word as your counsel. Not counsel as advice you might or might not take, but as truth you will obey. The word counsel, uh, it's an unfortunate word when applied to the Lord speaking to you. Because sometimes people, they, they, uh, you, know, you might go to somebody for counsel and think, yeah, I didn't like that counsel. 
And you can get, you get contrary counsel from people, yes from one, no from another. And so when you think, well, I'll get my counsel from the Lord, it's not like that. God isn't saying, well, you might try this. You might try and live a holy life. You might try these five things. No, God, when he gives you counsel, it's the truth and it's, it's more like a commandment. And it's something that we ought to do. Verse 19, behold, a whirlwind of the Lord has gone forth in fury, a violent whirlwind. It will fall violently on the head of the wicked. The anger of the Lord will not turn back until he has executed and performed the thoughts of his heart. In the latter days, you will understand it perfectly. In the latter days reminds us that the wicked may seem to prosper for a time while we suffer. And that, we've talked about that a lot with Jeremiah. The people kept prospering he kept suffering. God said, eventually I'll deal with it. And that wears on us. Asaph in Psalm 73, the great psalmist, the singer, he had, it looks like a heart attack and he was infirm. And he looked out and he said, God, I love you. I sing for you. I write songs. I write the songs that make the whole church sing, you know, that kind of thing. <laughs> and here I am having a heart attack. In ancient times when there isn't medicine for it and all that, and, and the wicked are prospering all around me, what's the deal? And God says, well, he says that God showed him the end of the wicked. And so we have a tendency to grow weary in our well-doing because we, we just talked about telling them, hey, what you're doing is sin, and then they prosper, their sin gains them prosperity physically and in this world and materially and they seem to be going on all gangbusters while you're you know, struggling to make ends meet and your health is deteriorating and all these things are happening and you think, what am I doing? There's a tendency to grow weary in well-doing and end up on the threshold where you think, I'm just not gonna do this anymore. God's not honoring his word and God says, hey, in the latter days, just you know, wait, be patient believe that what I've told you is true. You know that it is, just believe that it is. What does it profit if a man gains the whole world? What if this person you're worried about lives for 99 years in total prosperity, has everything that this world has to offer, and then dies to a Christless eternity? What's the deal there? That's, that's the problem. And so stay in the temple. Verse 21, I've not sent these prophets, yet they ran. I've not spoken to them, yet they prophesied. If they had stood in my counsel and had caused my people to hear my words, then they would have turned them from their evil way and from the evil of their doings. This reminds me that we have an obligation and a responsibility to be a source of spiritual help to other people. And what a joy that is to know spiritual truth. Do you know what a, an amazing thing it is to, to go to a person and say, you can live forever in heaven with God and his son, Jesus Christ. You can have your sins forgiven. You know, people are spending billions upon billions of dollars to go to psychotherapists and psychologists and doctors of various types because they have guilt because they're weighed down and burdened down because they can't figure out life and you and I can freely in five seconds tell a person, I know what your problem is, you're in sin, you're a sinner, but your sins can be forgiven at the cross of Jesus Christ. And those of you who as adults have experienced becoming born again, 
you know that in that moment, oh, doesn't it give you chills right now? It was like a thousand pound weight was lifted off your heart and you took a deep breath of the Holy Spirit for the first time ever you were alive. Really and truly alive. The eternity that God had put in your heart was filled with the presence of Jesus Christ and the knowledge of God. That's what we have to offer people and so we should keep ourselves in a place where we can tell people that. Verse 23, am I a God near at hand, says the Lord, and not a God afar off? Can anyone hide himself in secret places so I shall not see him, says the Lord? Do I not fill heaven and earth, says the Lord? Very simply, we shouldn't have any secret hiding places from the Lord. It's kind of silly to try and hide from him. Lately, I've been playing hide and seek in our tiny house with uh, CJ and little Jean. And, and don't tell CJ and little Jean, but they make so much noise. <laughs> Even when they have a good hiding place, you know, it's like that line in Lord of the Rings where the, the elf says, I could hear the dwarf breathing in the dark, you know, it's just, and so they're hiding, you know, in the closet or something and they're talking to each other. And so I, I have to make like I'm looking for them and can't find them, you know. It's, it's crazy, but fun. So God is there. So get rid of your secret hiding places. He hears you. He sees you. You're not really fooling him. Verse 25, I've heard what the prophets have said who prophesy lies in my name, saying, I have dreamed, I have dreamed. How long will this be in the heart of the prophets who prophesy lies? Indeed, they are prophets of the deceit of their own heart who try to make my people forget my name by their dreams, which everyone tells his neighbor as their fathers forgot my name for Baal. The prophet who has a dream, let him tell the dream. And he who has my word, let him speak my word faithfully. What is the chaff to the wheat, says the Lord? Is not my word like a fire, says the Lord, and like a hammer that breaks the rock in pieces? Therefore, behold, I'm against the prophet, says the Lord, who steal my words, every one from his neighbor. I'm against the prophet, says the Lord, who use their tongues and say, he says. I'm against those who prophesy false dreams, says the Lord, and tell them and cause my people to err by their lies and by their recklessness. I did not send them or command them, therefore they shall not profit this people at all, says the Lord. There's a great study in here on false prophets and all, but what I want to concentrate on is just the, the bare fact that there will always be false teachers and false prophets in the church. There will always be wolves that come in to God's sheepfold. We must therefore be discerning, applying the word of God to test the spirits to see if they are from God. God says there, he goes, let them tell their dream. He doesn't mean that dreams are bad or evil or that there can't be a word of God in a dream. He says, let them tell their dream and then let them have the word of God and just make sure everything lines up. Too many believers are on the threshold when they think they are in the temple because they are open to all manner of phenomena that purports to be from the Lord. Now, some of you who are from a more radical Pentecostal background, you can understand this without really feeling too critical of Pentecostalism. We're not against that, but in certain Pentecostal circles, just because something happens, it is verified and validated. And so I've been in situations where people have said the weirdest stuff, 
I mean, they've gotten up and, and said the weirdest th- stuff, stuff that is absolutely unbiblical, stuff that could never be uh, validated by the word of God. And then, they, of course, they do all manner of weird things as well. Uh, and if you question that, you're immediately said to be quenching the Holy Spirit because it's the phenomena itself that is important. I remember one meeting I was at, there was a gal who gave what she said was a prophecy that was just terrible. It it had no relation to the truth of the Bible at all. Afterwards, I asked the study leader, I said, hey, what do you think about that? He goes, oh, praise the Lord. And I go, finally, I said, do you even know what she said? He got so mad at me and he finally had to admit, no, I don't. But it was so cool that there was a prophecy. The Holy Spirit is not gonna contradict himself and we have to test everything by the word of God. It isn't quenching, it's verifying so that we can receive it as from the Lord. It is not more spiritual to accept anything rather than to test everything. Now Jeremiah had a reputation for prophesying doom and gloom. Where did he get that? From prophesying doom and gloom. Not entirely, of course, because even in his doom and gloom there was always hope. The people made fun of him. God took notice and in the remaining verses gave Jeremiah permission to turn the rebuke of the people back on themselves. Beginning in verse 33, so when these people or the prophet or the priest ask you saying, what is the oracle of the Lord? You shall say to them, what oracle? I will even forsake you, says the Lord. And as for the prophet and the priest and the people who say, the oracle of the Lord, I will even punish that man in his house. Thus every one of you shall say to his neighbor and every one to his brother, what is the Lord answered and what has the Lord spoken? And the oracle of the Lord you shall mention no more. For every man's word will be his oracle. For you have perverted the words of the living God, the Lord of hosts, our God. Thus you shall say to the prophet, what has the Lord answered you and what has the Lord spoken? But since you say the oracle of the Lord, therefore thus says the Lord, because you say this word, the oracle of the Lord, and I have sent to you saying, do not say the oracle of the Lord. Therefore behold, I even I will utterly forget you and forsake you and the city that I gave you and your fathers and will cast you out of my presence. And I will bring an everlasting reproach upon you and a perpetual shame which shall not be forgotten. Now, you may have noticed the word oracle repeated quite a bit in that section. Uh, And when you look at this, I'm told, in the original language, it would better be translated burden. Sometimes the prophets talk about the burden of the Lord, meaning the message of the Lord that was heavy on their hearts that they had to share with others. And what's happening in this is a play on words. It's repeated a lot because it's a play on words. The people, when they would see Jeremiah, would say, oh, what's today's burden? What burden are you going to lay on us today? What burden of the Lord? Making fun of him, mocking him. God now gave Jeremiah permission to say, you are the burden of the Lord. You are a burden to the Lord, and he will forget you and forsake you and this city and cast you out of his presence. A little bit of an unexpected answer. So you want to know what the burden is? It's you from God's point of view. Now, God would never utterly forsake the Jews nor Jerusalem. We, we understand that from the word, but also from history. The Jews are in Jerusalem today. Uh, and so what he's saying is that, what he's been saying throughout the whole book, I'm going to come, I'm going to destroy Jerusalem, I'm going to burn the temple, you're going to be in exile for 70 years, 
Uh, but uh, you, know, you wanna make fun of Jeremiah, you wanna make fun of the prophet, you wanna act like he only talks about burdens, I'll tell you what the real burden is. It's your sin on the heart of God. What application can we make to ourselves from that passage? Maybe this, if a professed believer remains on the threshold, as it were, continues to only bring forth characteristics we've noted, they live their entire life on the threshold, never really in the temple, perhaps they were not a believer after all, despite their protestations that they were. Jesus tells us that in that day, when he returns, many will say, Lord, Lord, and he'll say, hey, I never knew you. And so it behooves all of us to be certain that we know the Lord, that we've been born again, that we've asked the Lord to forgive us our sins, and to look at our life and say, if somebody really, really took note of my life, all of my life, every part of my life, am I in the... Am I in the temple? Would they say, yeah, there's, you're in the temple? Not, you're not perfect. It's nothing like that. No one is perfect. There's no such thing as sinless perfection. We're all sinners. But could you look at a person's life and say, that, person, that person's in the temple, struggling but growing in holiness and purity. They're in the temple. Or would they have to say, I, it seems one foot in, one foot out, or that person's clearly on the threshold or sadly with some people you think that person's nowhere near the temple anymore. I don't care what they say about their relationship with God. They couldn't even find the temple with Google Maps. They're so far out. And so it's, it's a personal thing. And of course, we all want to say, Lord, carry me over the threshold into your temple. Help me to repent and to do the first works. Keep me in the place of the love of God that I might remain sensitive to sin, that I might tremble at it, that I might grow in that sensitivity as a drunk uh, influenced by your Holy Spirit. Amen.